0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our app, and, of course, at the website, subchina.com. We offer uncensored reporting on everything from the burgeoning tech cold war to the Belt and Road, from the latest infrastructure undertakings to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Center for the Study of Contemporary China at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining me from his new palatial estate in lovely Nashville, Tennessee, is this year's winner of the Middle Tennessee Pie Eating Contest, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Congratulations. On the win, this is I well, like your, your third or fourth four, fourth win in competitive eating, right?
1: Kaiser, oh, you are that is ridiculous. You are truly scraping the bottom of the barrel. In
0: truth, Jeremy eats like a bird, and I'm I'm insanely jealous of that ability. I don't know why how you can eat so little and, and, and live.
1: Yes, it's true. I I only eat the finest foods known to man, but in very small quantities. <laughs> okay. <all right. laughs> Uh, I'm at
0: the Center for the Study of Contemporary China here at the invitation of my favorite host of another China-related podcast, at least not within our own network. So far I've recommended it On the show before But let me remind everyone Of the excellent CSCC podcast By Nason Machbubi. Nason is actually Joining us For this taping Right here A crossover show if, if you want it Of course You know Depending on how quickly You work through Your, your existing backlog But in any case uh, We'll be working together Again soon Nason is a research scholar At the center here And also a lecturer In law At the Penn Law School He works on Chinese law Among other things Great to finally Have you on
2: Yeah it's so great to be here, Kaiser, and I'm so thrilled that you're here at the Center today to give your own talk a little bit later, but also to have this opportunity to record this this episode and Thanks for the kind words about our podcast, and I should say thank you for being such a tremendous mentor as we've been developing the podcast. It's really been unbelievable how supportive you've been. So oh, oh, shucks. It's no, really no, no, nice of you. It, it. i, think, I think it's,
0: it's so good. You guys should check it out. <laughs> Did he pay you? No, <laughs> What's going on there um, in I'll pay them later. Don't worry. I'm a little uh, suspicious. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, we're we're going to be putting questions to you, uh, but we'd also love for you to switch hats when the Spirit moves you and throw some questions out to our other two guests. Sure.
1: And, Nason, I think perhaps this is a good moment before we plunge into the main meat of the topic to say a few words about your own podcast and maybe plug a couple of episodes that might be particularly interesting to our listeners.
2: Sure. I'll just say that our podcast is designed around giving uh, our audience a chance to hear some of our guest speakers and some of our faculty here at the University of Pennsylvania speak about their current research in uh, some greater length than is uh, usually the case with with podcasts. Uh, We try to uh, have the discussions be fairly academic, but at the same time accessible to uh, lay audiences and non-academic audiences. And uh, we've got a few already that uh, I think have been pretty well received, including uh, with Damien Ma on the Chinese economy. Yeah, with that Yang one is just great. That on the Chinese great. internet. And there's a whole bunch that are coming up. I think actually uh, with Kaiser's support and uh, the backlog that we have, we might be having almost an episode a week for, for some time to come. Um, so I hope people will will pay attention to the upcoming episodes. There's a few that are really quite good that are coming up
0: yeah absolutely. it's just it's just absolutely great. Uh, so before I introduce those other two guests on the program today, um, let's set up our topic a little bit, Jeremy. So it's become a kind of unexamined conventional wisdom in this idea that scholars of China have long self-censored. Um, would you Would you agree that's the case, Jeremy? Yeah,
1: I think that's fair to say. I think many of us have read one particular essay uh, by Perry Link. Uh, the highly respected China scholar called the Anaconda in the Chandelier. And we've operated on the assumption that there is a fair bit of self-censorship, especially when it comes to the study of contemporary Chinese politics, which is full of sensitive topics, or recent history, or even history stretching much farther back. Uh, I think we've done a show on that very topic.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, we've talked about how like, there's this line that's left deliberately blurred, uh, you know, presumably so that, you know, you don't know when you've crossed it, and that is, is incentive to self-censor. Uh, but is that assumption actually correct? Is it indeed the case that there's you know rampant or or commonplace self-censorship happening among academics? Uh, we've seen some really scathing allegations, some pretty serious indictments about about the careerism, the supposed moral cowardice of academics, uh, and we've seen reputable publications like the New Republic publishing reports that that claim, without really you know providing much evidence that there is an epidemic of academic self-censorship and while i i recognize that this massively overstated the the, the reality uh you know maya culpa here i had definitely assumed that it wasn't exactly uncommon either uh for some reason i had never thought though myself to examine that assumption closely Fortunately, somebody has. Two people, in fact, two political scientists who co-authored a paper published last August called Repressive Experiences Among China Scholars, New Evidence from Survey Data. And as the title suggests, the paper is built on extensive survey data of academics in a range of disciplines working on China and related topics as well. It it looks chiefly at how much censorship, how much coercion and other forms of repression they've experienced and how it's impacted the research. I I have to make clear that the paper is I hope you can see from the title, isn't mainly focused on self-censorship, but it it also looks at self-censorship. And that's going to be a good part of our focus today. And it's been a, a lot of the sort of public discussion about this particular paper, uh, though we're certainly going to get into the main body of the findings about plain old censorship and other ways that research is discouraged or or thwarted. So joining us here at the UPenn Center for the Study of Contemporary China is Rory Truax, Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton. What a pleasure to finally have you on the show, Rory.
3: Thank you. Thank you for for giving us this opportunity.
1: Also joining us from Columbia, Missouri is Sheena Greiton. Sheena is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Missouri. Sheena, a very, very warm welcome to Seneca.
4: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you today.
1: Let's set the scene here a bit and talk about some of the more prominent incidents of alleged academic censorship or censorship in fields adjacent to the social sciences, like law. I think many people will remember the Cambridge University Press and Springer Nature controversies, uh, in which books available internationally were pulled from uh, those publishers' China uh, websites. Uh, some might remember the controversy over the American Bar Association and the publication of a book by the dissident legal activist Tong Biao. Can you talk about those cases? Yeah, and, and maybe,
0: uh, Shina, you can start. Uh, and then I'd love to hear if Nason has anything also, Nathan, if you have anything to say about the Tung Biao case in particular.
4: Sure. I'll go ahead and start. So, so one of the things that we talk about in the paper and that, that we use to set the stage is that in the last several years, there have been a series of of incidents where academic research has been curtailed or somehow limited at the request of the Chinese government. And so one of the cases that we came across last fall was that Cambridge University Press, as well as Springer Nature, uh, so two very prominent academic publishers, had both received requests from the Chinese government or Chinese authorities to remove particular content from the Chinese language website or Chinese language catalog of their publications, and one of the concerning things about this was that it was done really without the knowledge or consent of the authors, the scholars, uh, as well as in many cases of the journal editors themselves, and. Uh, Cambridge University Press eventually reversed course, but several other publishers have continued to limit content that's available in in China. And so this prompted a, a debate about the nature of academic research and what its responsibilities were, the responsibilities of, of different actors to conduct and present research transparently and in a way that, that dealt in an ethical, responsible way with some of these pressures from uh, the Chinese political system. Rory, did you want to add anything?
3: Yeah, the, I think that was a, a nice summary. The only thing I would add is I think we, we've we um, always tried to emphasize that it's important to distinguish scholars from some of these institutions. And so the, the pressures are similar in the sense that the Chinese government frequently tries to restrict access for people. And this affects journalists and firms, other businesses, academics and universities. So that's the standard move is to try to encourage compliance through restricting access. But it's important to remember that uh, Cambridge University Press um, and Springer Nature, you know, the, the, the calculations they're facing and the decisions they're facing are different than Individual scholars, uh, which is the focus of our research,
0: right? And you didn't include these these publishing houses in in your study.
3: Yes, right. absolutely.
2: And, and I think you know the same point applies to the American Bar Association as an institution. Uh, Tang Biao, of course, as your listeners are well aware, is one of the most prominent Chinese rights lawyers of the past fifteen twenty years. Uh, he is currently living in essentially a form of exile in Princeton, New Jersey and uh, has been in the U.S. now for about, I guess, five or six years. That's right. Uh, And shortly after he arrived in the U.S., uh, he began writing a book about his life experiences uh, as a rights lawyer in China and was, I I believe, had some kind of understanding with the American Bar Association that they were going to publish it under one of their imprints. And when that fell through... Uh, he certainly felt that it was because the American Bar Association felt that this was a sensitive topic, uh, vis-a-vis the Chinese government, and they killed it for that reason. My understanding is that the reality is somewhat more complex, and it's a little bit hard for us on the outside to really figure out what happened. But it's clear that Tung Biao himself, who is a friend and someone who will actually appear on our podcast uh, in a few episodes, he himself feels that there was. Um, some institutional self-censorship at play here that he was very actively uh, speaking out about against for uh, some time after that decision was made well I
0: look forward to that show that'll be very interesting to hear from his his perspective uh, I, I've I've had people from who were sort of involved in this uh, who were very strenuous in their objections to the way that tong Biao has, has characterized it though and I, I want to make that clear as well so we Were the conversations that followed on these controversies with Cambridge University Press and and Springer Nature and and perhaps even the ABA, were these part of what prompted you folks, uh, you,
3: Sheena, and and Rory, to actually undertake your study? So I think, in general, we were feeling that this speaks to this broader debate about pressure from the Chinese government and the effects that it has on scholarship and the consumption of scholarship. And for us, a long time, um, you know, we're relatively new scholars in the field, and We've long felt that kind of the, the quality of information available about the risks that China scholars face is, is relatively poor. And so our initial endeavor was just simply to do something where we would systematically try to measure what we call repressive experiences, and we can talk more about what those are. And in doing so, we could help people understand a little bit more about the nature of the anaconda and the chandelier. So what are, what are the risks? What are the likelihood of different things happening? If something happens to me, is that unusual? Or have other people had it? What are those experiences like? uh, And what are the determinants of those experiences? So if I do research a certain topic, am I likely to be detained or denied a visa and so Mm -hmm. forth? So we were Mm -hmm. just trying to—our main goal was to try to provide scholars uh, with information um, in in terms of helping graduate training uh, and undergraduate training in in the China field. I see, I see.
4: If I could could just add briefly to that, um, you know, Rory and I have both done research on different aspects of— repression in China or elsewhere in East Asia. And so when we saw some of these debates and questions emerging, uh, there was this interesting question that I had wondered about from when I was in graduate school, which is that we're all told these stories or we somehow absorb these stories about the risk of being blacklisted for a visa because this happened to scholars who worked on an edited volume on Xinjiang.
0: Yeah, the, the star volume, yeah.
4: Yeah, the, the star edited volume. Um, or, or we, you know, hear stories from a colleague who, or a prominent scholar whose Chinese-language version of their book is quite different than the English-language one, yeah. or in some cases, just a little bit different. And so we hear these stories... But no one really knows how common or representative these experiences are. And, you know, when Rory and I were thinking about this, um, it seemed like that could have two effects, neither of which are particularly great. One is that people who were interested in sensitive topics, if they underestimated the risks that they faced, could potentially get themselves or someone else in trouble. And so there's a risk to underestimating the likelihood that you'll have trouble while you're doing research. But there's also a risk that if you overstate this and you think, oh gosh, everyone who writes about something remotely sensitive is going to be a denied a visa and I won't get a you know job and my career will be over, you know that kind of thinking is not super helpful either because it does lead people to pull back from um, potentially sensitive topics um but i saw a lot of people and i think rory would would agree we both know a lot of colleagues who are asking tough questions about the nature of the chinese political system about how it works they're doing it in ways that are sophisticated and and in many cases not really pulling punches they're telling the truth as they see it and and so it it just seemed like we really could use a sense of how often this actually happened and i know when i was a graduate student i would have very much appreciated knowing how common it was to run into certain problems while you're doing research and be able to have a conversation about what to do about those so that you know that that the paper emerged from these conversations about just you know if we if we if we overestimate and we think that this is really common and it's not then you know we might we might maybe people are self-censoring more than they should be. I went into the project fairly agnostic about what we would find on that particular question. But on the other hand, you know, if we if we underestimate the risks, then we risk getting people in trouble. And so this is something we need to take pretty seriously and gosh, wouldn't it be great if we had actual evidence on how common this was beyond these few what I what we call in the paper cautionary parables. Uh, stories that everybody hears that we think shape behavior, um, but that we didn't have a sense for for whether they actually represented the majority of people doing research on and in China.
1: So how did you go about
3: designing and conducting the research? The basic goal was to try to do a representative sample of the China field. And of course, the China field is difficult to define. And so we tried to make it a little bit more tractable by narrowing it to China social sciences. And we focused on scholars That were based outside uh, of mainland China, in part because it is actually illegal for foreigners to do research in mainland China. And we thought that the uh, the constraints facing those scholars were actually much different than the the constraints facing what we call international scholars. And our so our survey includes anybody based outside of mainland China, but those people are some of them are are foreign and Western, and some of them are. Uh, Chinese American and Chinese citizens. So it includes people of different backgrounds. And so the, the most difficult thing was to try to get people to take this survey and, and uh, getting academics to take a survey in the middle of the summer can be tough. But we were able to track down emails for about 2000 people. That was what we estimated to be the size of the China field. And In the end, we got about 600 responses. I think it was like 563 People who ended up taking the survey. That's
1: pretty good because uh, academics are the uh, laziest productive people I know.
3: Yeah, we're the
0: worst. Uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> hey, we're... I'm going to be careful about any sweeping generalizations <laughs> no sweeping gen- I make
3: about
2: academics.
3: Um, and so, uh, well, yeah. We... Just to clarify,
2: okay. you said it's illegal for foreigners to do research in China. What do you mean by no, that? No, no,
3: sorry. Um, yeah, let me clarify that. So it's, it's uh, technically uh, against regulations for a foreigner to conduct survey research in China That's without right. a local... Partner uh, managing it, and so for us to get government buy-in, we would get, we, it, it would have been too complicated to try to do this in China. It would be interesting to try to do a parallel survey of China scholars based in China, uh, but that's not something we thought we could bite off uh, with this project.
0: Nathan heard the word legal, and his, his well, I've just his come back from a, for a document month document. of
2: research in China, so I wanted to You're make sure <laughs> that everyone was clear that that was a legal. That's that enterprise. blurry line we were
3: talking about, yeah. Um, so in the end, we we ended up having a pretty good response rate, about yeah. 30%, which we were pleased with. Um, and we we feel that we have good reason to believe that the the sample that we got is is pretty representative of the field. And of course, there might be certain types of people that are less likely to respond and more likely to respond. But overall, we feel fairly confident that we have a pretty good uh, set of data to work with. They were self-censoring and didn't respond. Well, and that's a concern. <laughs> I mean, we, we've gotten that criticism is that right, maybe people right. who were so scared... Uh, they didn't respond to the survey because they didn't want to reveal their responses. But then we've gotten the opposite criticism, which is maybe that people who were particularly worried about repressive experiences were more likely to respond. So it's the bias it's is a wash. <laughs> it's, it, it's a wash or it's, it's hard to tell. Um, but what we can say is that based on the information we know in terms of demographics, like our survey looks pretty good compared to the, the uh, population of China scholars.
0: So I, I want to ask you about the, the different categories of repression that you include, but I want to fire a quick question to Nason first, which is what before this survey, before this 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 research was published, what was your gut feeling on the extent of of, of self-censorship happening uh, among academics? Oh, sure. or, I'm, or 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 I'm, even I'm of, grateful of, for of, the
2: opportunity to talk about it a little bit. And I I I I'm I'm gonna choose my words a little bit carefully only because I think There's an important point to make here that I worry could be mischaracterized in the very charged atmosphere that we face at present in in respect to how China's discussed in the U.S. and how China scholars are discussed in the U.S. And and the point that I want to make is simply this. I feel very strongly that at least in my field in law, uh, we cover all the most sensitive topics in the collectivity of our research. Now, of course, everyone focuses on different topics. Some people focus on the most sensitive topics involving criminal law. Myself, I focus on administrative law, which has some sensitive elements to it, but is not perhaps the most sensitive element. Um, And so if you look at the, the range of work that's being done on Chinese law right now, including myself and many others, I think it would be very hard to suggest that we are not covering the important and sensitive topics. That said, to do this work and to go to China regularly and to speak with Chinese interlocutors requires some degree of wisdom, some degree of practical wisdom in how you go about doing it. Like I said, I just spent the last month um, in China visiting at Beijing University, and I can't deny that there's some ways in which I'm conscious of being in a uh, restrictive environment when I'm there and that it does color some ways in which I act on a daily basis. Now, is it fair to characterize that as self-censorship? I I feel it's not, because I feel that in the published work that comes out of that research experience, uh, one would be very hard to find anything that I'm not speaking directly about. Um, But there is some practical wisdom involved, and I'm hopeful that this discussion is capacious enough to include some recognition of the need for practical wisdom without labeling that in sort of pernicious terms. This makes so much sense to me
1: when now you find that people who study China find themselves under political pressure, particularly in the United States, to toe a line generally one of hostility towards China. This is a question that actually literally keeps me up at night. So I am very, very pleased to have this discussion.
0: Well, we've got lots uh, to talk about there, but let's let's uh, actually turn back for, first and, and and talk about the actual research. And uh, as I said, it's focused not uh, it's on repressed experiences, the self censorship conversation. Let's let's put a pin in for just one second here. Um, speaking about this, Sheena, you guys have uh, I think it was 13 different categories of repression uh, and three sort of buckets into which you place these. Can you can you quickly talk about what those are so that we, we know what we're uh, referring to here?
4: Sure. So the, the three broad categories that we looked at were restrictions on access to China itself, restrictions on access to materials once you're in China doing research, and then Monitoring and surveillance uh, of that research uh, by authorities in in China. So the
0: first thing would be like visa denials, right?
4: Yeah. So access to China, we looked at um, whether somebody had formally been denied a visa, um, whether they had just gotten kind of a slow, no difficulty obtaining a visa, um, and then the sort of highest category, which is the the people who have been formally blacklisted for an extended or indefinite period of time. Mm-hmm. So those were three different ways that access to China can be restricted or managed. Um, and then when we looked at access to materials. We looked at whether somebody had been denied access to an archive, denied access to specific materials in an archive, because sometimes you can get into the the archive, but but be told you can't see X or Y document when you request it. Um, people who'd had interview subjects withdraw for unexpected or last minute reasons that might be related to to. Um, the nature of the research, and then uh, some incidents where people had had their notes or computer actually confiscated by the authorities. So that was access to materials. And then the last category had to do with um, surveillance and monitoring um, and potential intimidation. And so we looked at whether or not Chinese friends or interlocutors had been contacted, warned, or pressured by the authorities about uh, an international scholar's research And we looked at whether or not uh, scholars had been uh, asked to come in and and drink tea and and explain their research uh, to somebody, um, whether they had been pressured to cooperate, uh, whether they had been misled about the identity of one of the people they were dealing with. Um, And then the last uh, things we looked at were physical intimidation or actually being detained physically by the authorities. Um, And people being harassed either on or threatened online or or by phone to phone or phone or email or social media. And so in total, that was uh, these 13 different experiences. And, uh, and what we tried to do was just ask about each of these in a way that would enable us to put some numbers on these experiences and, and figure out how common they were. But we also then asked people to just, uh, if they were willing to, to describe the experience. And so we ended up with a lot of... Um, open-ended responses and Rory and I are really grateful to the people who took time to to document and describe these experiences for us because there were a lot of things that emerged from those descriptions that were actually really interesting about how this process works.
1: So I think you've set up very well how you did this and why you did this. Let's now ask you about what you found. And maybe we could stay with
0: Sheena first for this.
4: Sure so so in the um in the uh, paper, we characterize these experiences as rare but real. And um, and we found that the rates of, of scholars having these experiences uh, did vary quite a bit. Everybody had their own expectations going in about you know what the percentages might look like. But we found that about 5% of people had had trouble obtaining a visa. And by that, I mean kind of combining being denied a visa or just having difficulty getting one. Uh, it was much more common that people might have trouble accessing materials. So around 20 to 25% of people um, had had difficulty accessing materials in an archive and among historians. So our sample includes economists, and they don't tend to do as much archival research. But if you look at the percentages in a discipline like history or political science, those numbers are are even higher. Um, And then Probably one of the most interesting findings for me and one of the most surprising was that around 10% of China scholars had been interviewed by the authorities or asked to explain their research. Um, And if you had told me when I was in graduate school that there was a 1 in 10 chance that you'd be called down to drink tea and asked, what on earth are you doing here, please explain yourself, you know, that probably would have been very helpful information, and in fact, uh, I will say Rory and I fall in different places in terms of our, our own experiences. I have been invited to to drink tea and talk about my research. Um and I think I think Rory has not. So um Someday, maybe,
3: Sheena. Someday.
4: Someday, yes. Um and that would not surprise me.
0: <laughs> well, Jeremy and I I think Jeremy and I are veteran tea drinkers. Uh but I'm curious, like Nason, how how about how about you? Have you been have you had that, that repressive experience? <laughs>
2: I will say that, that I'm, 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 I'm thrilled to report that I have not had that experience uh this uh this last month in Beijing was against the backdrop of the uh the uh, hostage taking on both sides uh, of the Pacific and uh having a international researcher be detained in China just as I was arriving Uh, Did not fill me with uh, confidence while I was there. But I was grateful that I was not in any way talked to on this trip and was able to leave uh, without incident. Or sharing
0: the fate of Messieurs Corvig and Spavor. (laughs) Yeah. Well, glad to have you back.
4: Uh, Let me also just add one thing about the use of this term repressive experiences, because I think it's important to put this in context, Mm. um, which is that, you know, the experience of being invited to, to drink tea can be. Um, you know, a little bit intimidating. It is something that we believe researchers should take seriously, especially because we also find that it's, and I'd like to come back to this, it's more common to have Chinese friends or interlocutors warned or pressured about one's research than it is for the international scholar, uh, visiting scholar to be to be contacted. Um, and I think that has really important implications for this discussion about, about self-censorship. But the the point I wanted to make about calling this repressive experiences is that Rory and I did wrestle a little bit with this language because that sounded, frankly, a little bit melodramatic or like we potentially were equating, you know, the experiences of of international scholars with, for example, some of what's happening in, in Xinjiang and in Western China today. And so I just want to be clear by calling these repressive experiences, we're not uh, in any way equating the two, and I, I just I think that's it's important to sort of put that that terminology in context. Uh, Rory, did you want to add anything?
3: Sure. Um, no, I appreciate you making that point. In terms of of other key takeaways on on the repressive findings, um, the other two I would I would point to would be one of the things we were able to do with our data was look at some of these trends over time. So when we asked people these questions, we had them provide a date when they had these experiences. And that was over a ten-year period, and and what we found is, by and large, there aren't major temporal trends. Meaning, I mean, my hypothesis going in was that we would observe maybe a spike in these sort of experiences following Xi Jinping, uh, but that yeah, I really think probably most people, would yeah, most that people that was would, and and I think there's a general feeling that the research environment has gotten worse, and I think that's that's fairly uniform among the China field that that perception. Uh, it didn't really show up in our data, but that might be because some of the things where the areas where it's getting worse might not be being captured in our survey. So, for example, uh, you talk to people who do a lot of fieldwork and they'll say it's actually much harder to even have interviews at all uh, anymore. The one thing where there was a temporal trend was uh, access to archives. And so if you talk to historians, um, they'll talk a lot about how the archives are currently being sanitized and projects that were feasible, dissertations, books that were feasible 10 or 15 years ago are no longer feasible today. And it's quite difficult, especially for foreign researchers, to get access to archives. And that's, that trend does show up clearly in our data. So. those
0: damn new Qing
1: historians. Exactly. That and, and
3: things that, <laughs> things that uh, you might not think uh, are particularly sensitive at first glance have, have become sensitive in, in, the, in the history field, at least. So that's one trend I would, I would highlight. And then the second thing um, that really jumped out to me when we looked at the data is that we did analyze like the determinants of these experiences. So what makes someone more likely to get taken to tea or denied a visa and so forth? And we found kind of separate logics. So being denied access to China, it is true that if you work on some more sensitive topics relating to ethnicity, Xinjiang, human rights, and so forth, uh, this does seem to be systematically making you more likely to have visa issues. But it's not deterministic, meaning that there are plenty of people who work on those set of research questions that have never had visa issues. And conversely, there are a lot of people who work on on research questions we might think are not particularly sensitive that do have visa problems and so overall for me at least i I was struck by how poorly we were able to predict whether or not someone actually had these experiences and so there is some randomness and some idiosyncrasies to to all of that Um, in terms of being taken to t again it seems like this is largely the calculus of local officials and so it's basically a matter of whether or not you attract attention into the field. It's not someone. It's not someone sitting there reading your your dissertation, waiting for you to come over to China so they can take you to tea. It's more they they catch wind of you at a talk or attending an event or a protest, kind of snooping around in the field where they don't want you, uh, and that drives those experiences. And so those are kind of local level officials, local public security officers, or whatever. Uh, trying to manage risk and gather information. Often right. scholars are mistaken for journalists who are, I think, often targeted with these sorts of uh, behaviors. Nason, you wanted to add something? Yeah,
2: just um, and against the backdrop of what Rory just said, but then also going back to uh, Sheena's earlier point, I really just wanted to underscore how important it is to be thinking in terms of the impact on Chinese interlocutors. You know, there's We can just discuss whether foreign researchers might face uh, issues with their visas or even you know against the backdrop of of uh the canadian detentions maybe maybe even have to worry about exit bans and detentions but really uh what i would submit is the most robust reason to exercise practical wisdom as a foreign researcher in china is the impact on on chinese interlocutors uh, which is largely hidden i think to mm. us it's it's not That's clear right. to me that uh chinese interlocutors would necessarily Uh, burden us with letting us know about the ways in which our interactions with them later result in their needing to themselves have some kind of tea. Sure. So,
1: Nason, what you're saying, if I may condense it into uh, a brief phrase, is don't be a jerk to your Chinese friends, right? Like, don't do stuff that will get them into trouble. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That's something I wholeheartedly agree with. In gold, cornian.
4: <laughs> Just to put the the numbers on this, when we looked at, you know, I said before, it's about nine or ten percent of of foreign scholars, uh, meaning so that includes some Chinese citizens, but people who are based overseas who come to China to do research. It's about ten percent of people who've had the experience of being interviewed themselves. But if you look at the percentage of people who do a lot of field work in China. And you ask how many of them have had Chinese friends, interlocutors, colleagues at their host institution contacted and warned about their research. The number goes up to about 15%. Mm, mm, So
0: um,
4: that's one and a half times more. These are still, you know, it's still not 50% of people. But I think that that, what that does is pose some pretty serious ethical questions. And I will add, you know, in the social sciences, most of us go through uh, this federally mandated IRB, Institutional Review Board, process that's designed to protect what are called human subjects. But for a lot of the people who get pressured, they actually fall in this category that doesn't formally qualify them as a subject of the research, right? It's not necessarily your interviewee. It might be the person who, you know, again, is a colleague at a host institution, the director of the institution. It might be an interpreter or a a driver or, uh, you know, somebody who helps you navigate a, a local archive. Those people are not formally research subjects, but they're the people who we found were most likely to be pressured about your research, and so there's a really, I think, interesting place for very strong uh, consideration of professional ethics because this is not something the IRB will require you to think through, but it is the biggest area where you could get somebody else in very serious trouble. And I, I think that the, um, the the Chinese system, to be quite honest, probably works with that a little bit to their to to its yes, advantage. Yes, absolutely. Um, Takes the the ethics of researchers and says, "Okay, um, you know I weaponizes because, it, <laughs> yeah." And I and I sit there and I, you know, I have I I think both. Well, I'll let Rory speak for for himself, but I've certainly had these conversations with myself about what the right thing to do is, because it's one thing for me not to get a visa and to have to change direction in my research, even if you know even if it, I, I ended up having very serious issues returning to China, that would be very, very different than the stakes for someone who lives and works at a Chinese institution, who has Chinese citizenship and whose family are all in China. Um, and it's it's a different ethical calculation. Yeah,
1: this is why I think, you know, this topic that we're discussing and your research is so important because, you know, some of the most extreme voices on this kind of subject are people who they don't have any skin in the game. They're not in China. They don't have family in China. You have a lot of Europeans, Americans, Australians, you know, people who have absolutely zero political risk and no empathy for people who do. And this I, it sometimes enrages me when i read this kind more of more than apology. occasionally
0: <laughs> no absolutely I, I think this is a really great topic that that takes us into the topic of self censorship let's let's start with this um, you know, what is your operating definition of self-censorship? We've just been talking about how, uh, like journalists, you know, who often concern themselves about the welfare of their sources, especially, you know, if they're being interviewed on sensitive topics, this is a concern for scholars. And while in some disciplines, anthropology, for example, it's really baked into the discipline, in the way that you are taught to conduct interviews with sources, but is acquiescing, for example, to... Is is this is this sort of behavior? Uh, does it, in your mind, rise to the level of self censorship? Or, what about other things like acquiescing to edits to a Chinese language version of a book that you've published? Uh, what constitutes actual self censorship?
3: So, I, I think for me, the the one thing I've learned from this project, so we actually ask people a few questions on this. So, first of all, we ask people, do you think self censorship is a problem in the field? And we had, I think it was 68% of our, our sample, something around that, said that they believed it was a serious or very serious problem. And so that fact can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Sort of the knee-jerk interpretation is that, oh, everybody's self-censoring. I think I interpret it differently reading some of the open-ended responses, which is that self-censorship is something that academics think about all the time. And So one of the characterizations that's been out there in the media is that uh, academics are sort of naive and, and cowardly and 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 self-censoring without without much introspection or reflection. And I think a lot of us are are constantly thinking about this issue and are often caught in this very difficult place of of wanting to do honest uh, and open research and, and and good research, but also wanting to protect uh, the people we work with and, and protect ourselves. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. So so that was one takeaway for me. But the but the the thing I would push is that we stop using this term altogether because I think self-censorship, I think it was somebody in our open-ended responses said, why are we calling it self-censorship? Uh, that's in some sense putting the onus on the researcher and sort of blaming them, blaming the victim. We should be calling it what it is, which is censorship, which is that these are people that are inter- interfacing with an authoritarian government that is pressuring them to not speak out their minds. And so Do we describe the Chinese population, Chinese citizens as self-censoring? Well, often we say they are being repressed or being censored. And again, I don't want to create a false equivalency between China scholars and Chinese citizens. But this idea of self-censorship, I think that that can be a little bit problematic. Um, In terms of a working (coughs) definition, I'm sure Sheena has a better thought than I do. But I I think one way to go about it is to actually start ruling out things that self-censorship is not. And so canceling a project or, or not doing a project because you're worried that it's going to get somebody in trouble that isn't self-censorship in my book it, it could be problematic in terms of our knowledge production but in terms of research ethics it's absolutely the right decision and so something that came across again in our in our survey is that a lot of people a lot of the behaviors we might describe at face value as self-censorship are often done uh, in the name of, of research ethics and protecting subjects so, I actually, just to answer your question, Kaiser, I actually have difficulty really pinning down what is the precise behavior that that is self censorship and, and problematic for that reason. But I, I'm sure, Sheena, what what would you what would your response to that be?
4: So, as we think about self censorship, um, you know, one of the things that emerged from the research were a couple of key distinctions that I think it's important to keep in mind. First, is this this one about Uh, what you do in the field, what Nason called practical wisdom versus what you publish in the conclusions that you draw Um, and for me discretion is not self censorship but you know maybe you call it etiquette or or Jeremy's don't be a jerk Um, but there's you know conducting, there's the practical aspect of Uh, of what you say and how you conduct yourself in an appropriate way and and ethical way in China. And then there's the matter of the conclusions that you draw in, in your published work. And very few people thought that the problem with self-censorship had to do with people actually changing the conclusions of public published research. My own sense is that in the China field, if you go and look at top journals or, or books published in political science, there's a tremendous amount of work that is on what we would call sensitive topics.
0: But it's also something that would be hard for you to suss out in, in survey research, wouldn't it? I mean, who's going to admit to that? <laughs>
4: Sure. Yeah, I think that's, uh, well, some, actually some, the short answer is some people. You know, so we asked in the survey, we asked people both what they had done and we asked them what they had observed their colleagues doing. Ah, right. Um, and so we have a, a little bit of ability to compare, you know, sort of both what people self-described and what they described their field doing. Um. And the numbers were not as... Different as I thought uh, they might be. And so, for example, about half of people, and this number was actually lower than I thought it might be, use different language to describe a project hmm. in China. I would not personally call that self-censorship. I would place that under the sort of um, what, what Nathan earlier called practical wisdom. Maybe we just call it etiquette. I mean, I know when I go home and talk to relatives in Idaho and Montana about how my work is going, I don't use the same language to talk about it that I would, would use in Washington, D.C., um, just because there are different audiences. I get a pretty good range actually, you know, and it's it's fascinating to think about that as a, a teaching issue when it comes to China too, because, you know, when I was teaching this semester, I talked about what was happening in Xinjiang, we talked about human rights in China, we talked about the nature of the Chinese political system. And in this great moment, sort of reflecting on my responsibilities as a teacher, President Trump came to do a rally in Colombia in early November. And I had students in my classroom who were working the rally as interns for the Republican Party or the Republican candidate. I had students who were either protesting or doing somehow involved because they were working for the Democratic Senate candidate. And then I had students from the journalism school, which is um, Missouri's journalism school is is pretty large and, and well-known, um, who were going as members of the media to cover the rally as a news event. And it was just a great... Sort of reminder of the the spectrum of opinions that we are responsible for um, communicating our our work and our knowledge mm. to, um, and you know, Rory and I teach in in very different academic institutions: one you know private East Coast institution, and one public state institution in the Midwest. And yet we both found that these were really important questions for our work, both as, as researchers, but also as, as teachers and sort of could inform how we taught. So it was a, it was a, great, a great project to think about in that sense.
0: Uh, so Nason, just following in, in the spirit of you know that Rory suggested that we sort of eliminate things from the list. What about what I, I raised about uh, expurgating a book or acquiescing in the censorship of a book that you've published? In the the you know there was a debate some some years ago between uh, I maybe mean, not not a heated one but Evan Osnos and Pete Hessler about whether you should a- allow a, a bowdlerized version of your book translated into Chinese to be published with the intention of you know reaching an audience even if the, what's what's taken out. Is, is, is.
2: Sure. Uh, I can speak to that, but I I did want to also say something a little bit about this idea of what the definition of self-censorship is, is, and sort of using maybe my own experience as a little bit of a, as a case study, you know, I I work on this question of uh, whether uh, lawsuits against the government in China can proceed in a relatively uh, regular way that uh, uh, can elicit uh, just outcomes for Chinese plaintiffs. And a a kind of critique could be that as I write on this topic, I don't talk about Xinjiang. And so that to me is under the rubric of Xinjiang is important, but it's not what I'm studying. And so I hope our political environment allows researchers to work on issues relating to Chinese law and governance that are not Xinjiang, that don't explicitly raise Xinjiang, but are not meant in any way to suggest that Xinjiang is not an important issue on its own. Now then, within that area that I work on, one could say that to the extent that there are difficulties in litigation against the government in China, it has to do with the relationship of the party to the state and the nature of political power in China. It would never occur to me not to speak about that forthrightly in my published work in the U.S., I can't think of any American scholar of Chinese law who writes about administrative law or judicial reform in China who doesn't speak very directly about the relationship of the party to the state and the nature of political power. So I I sometimes wonder whether when we're talking about self-censorship, the idea is that we're not constantly speaking about all the most sensitive topics, even if they're not within the particular area that we happen to be looking at, or if it's allowed to look at, well, in the area you're looking at, are you speaking about it forthrightly? Now, going to the question you just asked about sort of exposure within China, uh, I have not personally dealt yet with the idea of having my published work be published in any sort of different way within China, But I do give many talks throughout China in Chinese about my work, and I am probably not likely to speak as directly about the nature of the Communist Party's uh, power in China as I am in my published work in English. To me, that would be under the uh, rubric of uh, practical wisdom of how I go about doing my work in China, Um, but I think I would hesitate to change published work in any meaningful way, because I do think that uh, some of that can get closer to concerns about not saying the full story.
3: It's difficult to say what the counterfactual would be. So what would research look like in the absence of of political pressure from the Chinese government? Uh, My own sense, at least in political science, is if you look around at the field, I was at a conference in December. Sheena was there as well with 55 China scholars. And if you look around Effectively, everybody is working on something that, that could be construed as sensitive in some way or another. And th- there is- they all think of their work as sensitive. And everybody, right? that, that is true. So everybody, most people who took our survey would describe their research as sensitive, even if they hadn't had one of these repressive experiences. But so if the concern is that we're all going to produce research that's a little bit too rosy on the CCP, I, I just, I, I think that's just off base. And if, if people who believe that- I would encourage them to to go to a political science conference or read some of our journals and and I um, some of these accusations that have come out about this so-called epidemic of self-censorship I'm afraid they usually reflect a little ignorance in the sense that they they're the people that are making these accusations aren't taking enough time to actually read read the work and, and in making that accusation are doing a real disservice to people I mean the, the only other thing I would add to this is we often forget the opposite pressure which is that there is some professional benefit and professional reward to being perceived as sort of edgy and doing research on, on kind of sexy, edgy topics. It's a very good point. And, and so, you know, a lot of the, the, top, the top research in, in top journals right now is on issues of repression and propaganda and human rights and so forth. And some of the, my colleagues at that conference in December were saying, well, look, we, we might actually be at the opposite point, the opposite problem, where the professional incentives Plus, the the political environment in the United States are such that saying anything positive or even neutral about the Communist Party um, is difficult to do and difficult to publish. And so if anything, we might have the opposite problem where our research is actually too negative on the party. And so the hope is that we can produce research in kind of an ideological vacuum. Right now, we're getting pressure, obviously, from the Chinese government. And now we're getting pressure at home for being cowardly and craven. Uh, and both of those pressures are bad. and and the the hope is that, as researchers, we can we can conduct research uh, so and just stick to the data. If the data is positive about the Communist Party, so be it. If the data is bad, negative for the Communist Party, so be it. That's that's the ideal. And I, I'm afraid we we might be departing from that ideal for these two different pressures.
4: The other distinction that I think it's important to keep in mind because I, I think it's had a big effect on this public conversation is the difference between what academics publish in their sort of core academic work and the commentary that they might give to local journalists or op-eds or things like that. Or (laughs)
0: Twitter. And I think we
4: have to be really careful about our expectations there because not every China scholar is an expert, for example, on Xinjiang. And so saying that every single China scholar in the United States should write an op-ed about Xinjiang, um, there probably aren't enough op ed placements in the country for 2,000 people to do that, and I don't know that we need 2,000 different op-eds, um, nor do I necessarily think that it is a good thing for scholarly credibility to ask people to go beyond what they actually are experts on. And just as you would not want me talking about the Chinese financial system or banking, um, because I, it's not what I work on, it's not my expertise, and I, I would go so far as to say it's potentially irresponsible for me to sort of start issuing policy pronouncements about that, uh, given, given what I view as the limits of my knowledge. Um, I'm not sure that we want as a society, as a country in the United States, to have um, academics presenting themselves as experts on Xinjiang if, for example, they have never been there. Now, if they're teaching a course on Chinese politics, I would argue that it is reasonable because we all teach courses, you know, in, in in teaching about China, we all cover areas we're more and less familiar with. Um, I would say Xinjiang should be included. Um, but usually when people make these allegations of self-censorship, they don't even ask what it is that we're teaching Um, you know, 50 or 100 students in our classes about China. They're saying, you didn't write an op-ed or you didn't speak up publicly. Sometimes even, you haven't tweeted about X. And the absence of a tweet about X means that you are self-censoring. And I just don't think you can draw that conclusion. I think we have to be very, very careful um, that we don't sort of expect a uniform public um, uh, sort of public discourse from from China scholars. Um, I don't think that's consistent with the way that we focus our research um, or the way that most of us engage with with the public, which is selectively on the areas that we have real ex- d- and deep expertise on. And I you know there's some benefit to keeping it to that rather than asking people to go beyond what they truly understand well.
0: I suspect, Jeremy, you're probably pumping your fist in the air right now in agreement with this. That, that was, oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and if I could just say one Absolutely. additional
2: point to that excellent intervention by, by Sheena, I think if you think about the full range of activities that academics engage in, you can not only look at the different types of ways that academics express themselves, whether in their scholarly work or in their media commentary, how they teach their classes, I think it's fair to look also at institutions and the way in which institutions have programming on China. Um, So for example, looking at the programming of our center here at Penn, the Center for the Study of Contemporary China, I think it would be very hard to look at the range of speakers we have over the course of a given academic year, the range of conferences, and suggest that in any way our center um, is not doing a a full uh, account of all the different uh, points one could make about China at the moment. And, and I do think it is fair to look at uh, other institutions uh, to consider um, the potential impact of Confucius Institutes. I think that's a slightly different subject from what we've been focused on so far. But I do think those are fair uh, points to look at. Uh, and so you can get a full picture of the way in which the academic community as a collectivity uh, engages in its study of China but that that requires sophistication. It requires nuance. It's not something that can be reduced to uh, easy critiques uh, and sound bites. By which you mean a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm
0: curious, Rory and 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 Sheena both, what kind of a reaction have you had so far to the the publication of your paper from the the scholarly community itself, from the China watching community more broadly?
3: Um, so I think overall the the reaction has been been positive and and. I think for most people, the most useful thing, in this was just getting a sense of what the risks are and what the experiences are. So when we publish the paper, we're going to publish that full appendix, which has all these descriptions of what it's like to be taken for tea or denied a visa. And so just providing that information for people, I think has been helpful. Uh, in terms of this broader debate, it's it's been funny. People have kind of used the paper uh, to make whatever argument they want to make. So some people have used it to say, look, there's repression in the China field. And, and, you know, these are courageous scholars. And some people have said, look, there's no repression in the China field. It's not that bad. Some people have said, oh, look at all the self-censoring among the China scholars. And others have said, oh, there's, they're, look, they're not self-censoring. So it's it's the data is such that it, it actually requires a lot of nuance. It's a Rorschach um, test. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, 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 we've always tried to be very careful in, in how we present the findings. And sometimes that, that nuance is, is lost in a little bit of the public debate. Um, but overall, I think the reaction ha- has been positive and, and our hope, and I, I would be I would like to hear Sheena's thoughts on this as well, is that it does spur obviously some introspection but also some some policy solutions and some coordination. And uh, a lot of the the nature of these interactions is that individual scholars or institutions come under pressure from the Chinese government and then they're sort of uh, left out to dry and, and unclear as to how to handle the situation. And so we need, Uh, More coordination among academics and universities. Yeah, um, I I want to talk
0: about the the actual solutions and and who the right policy actors are for that. But let me, before we do that, I I do want to ask Sheena, uh, what should people be taking away? I mean, I think that clearly it's something that many people will look at and and interpret in in a way that just simply confirms their own pre-existing biases. But what do you hope they will, in fact, takeaway from the research?
4: Thanks. I, I think that there are a couple of, uh, of key takeaways. One is this idea that this, this stuff is rare, but that it, it is real, and these are real challenges. Um, second is, and I, and I agree with Rory, that a lot of the help to the sort of the, the community of China scholars has been in simply providing a baseline for how common this stuff is. Second, I think, you know, for me in terms of thinking about responsibilities, uh, that this point about the distinction between censorship and self-censorship and between the stakes for foreign or international researchers versus Chinese interlocutors is one of the biggest points that I hope personally people take away um, from the... and. and that it does start to change a little bit of how we use this term, self censorship. So personally, one of my hopes is that people become much, much more careful about these allegations of of self censorship and start to understand the stakes for people in China who are connected to to international researchers. Well, um, well I'm
0: certainly chastened in that regard. I, I won't I won't be using that word nearly so casually. So thanks thanks very much for that. And you go please go on.
4: Well, I think that's—I it's—it certainly changed how I use that that term. Um, it's made me more uh, more cautious or or more precise with my language as well. So we've had it—you know—we had that conversation at um, at CSIS, and one of the interesting moments for me in the conversation was um, when we asked the question: Okay, um, you know, if you think that there's this epidemic of self censorship, um, what is the work that's not being done as a result? And that was a very difficult question to get a clear answer to. Um, and a lot of it came down to sort of these questions about, well, how legitimate is the Communist Party or what does Xi Jinping think? And um, if you're talking about what Xi Jinping thinks, you're probably more in the realm of psychology than political science, um, which is not to say that these are not important questions for us to be asking, but you're you're probably simply asking the wrong people Um and there are, are psychologists out there who might be able to give you a little bit more insight than political scientists. So it's, you know, and, and one of the things I, I took away was that it might be helpful to actually sort of systematically ask, are there places that are, uh, where research has not been done? Um, when I do that sort of mental inventory of my field, I actually don't see a lot. I see places where we'd love to answer new and interesting questions but I don't see sort of systematic gaps, um, and so uh, you know that's um, that was one of the areas where I, I hope the conversation does progress in the next you know six months to co- to a couple years, um, because it's an important question uh, for all of us to to think about, and it'll affect you know what um, what everybody individually chooses as as research projects for the next few years. Rory, did you have thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I mean I I. I I would second everything you said, and uh, I should also just add that I, I think it's great that journalists and, and others in that community are, are looking into issues of self-censorship and repression and academic freedom, and universities and academics are not above that sort of scrutiny. And so we should welcome that type of interrogation and, and, and use it as a way to educate um, both sides and, and, and have a balanced discussion about this. My reservation with some of the pieces that have come out is that just from a research perspective, they do feel a little bit like a fishing expedition, meaning if you go looking for an epidemic of self-censorship and then you present uh, all the little instances you find and then uh, you paint that as the full picture, that is misleading. And that's, that's in academia and in, in, in political science what we will call a biased inference. Uh, there's other fancier terms for this, selecting on the dependent variable. I don't want to get too jargony. Um, but the problem is this overlooks all the instances of scholars not self-censoring. Uh, if we talk about institutions canceling talks and so forth or, or various things going on by, at the university level, we forget all the institutions that stand up to China all of the time. Uh, and so my hope is that in, in Confucius Institutes, it's a similar thing, right? So we can, we can think of examples of Confucius Institutes uh, maybe exerting some some nefarious influence, but we actually don't have really systematic research as to what all of these things are doing, what kind of activities they're doing, and so forth. And so it it requires uh, a lot more in depth, balanced research um, that is open to a lot of different conclusions, um, rather than searching for evidence that backs up a particular line of argumentation. So that would be my, my criticism of some of the pieces that have come out. But I, I think those who I've spoken to are 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 sensible and are trying to, to get the story right. Um, it just requires uh, some more digging, perhaps. The, the piece of advice I was given by one of my advisors, Elites High, is that no piece of research is more important than the safety of the people that you're working with or your own safety. And so that's sort of the anthropologist's creed, um, and that's, that's consistent with human subjects research. And so that's what we tell our students all the time. While there might be payoffs to doing risky things, we must always, as researchers, think about the worst possible case for, for our research assistants or other partners that we're working with on the ground. So that would be, that's always rule one. And then the, the follow-up to that is rule two, which would be find yourself a topic where you feel comfortable that you can reach any conclusion. Um, if you're starting a topic where you want to re- re- reach a conclusion in any direction or you're uncomfortable reaching a certain conclusion because it might be too sensitive, then don't study that topic. There are plenty of, of topics that are, are less sensitive um, that you, that you can focus on. This is uh, actually a piece of advice I once got from Mary, Mary Kay Magstad, um, who's a a journalist who spent a lot of time in China. And she said, if you're self-censoring, um, on a topic, then you, then you might as well just not, not, not do it. You might as well get out. And so there are plenty of research topics, some more sensitive than others and, and find the one that, that you find comfortable to work on. That'd be, that'd be my advice. But Sheena, what do you, what are your thoughts?
4: Yeah. So I, I think I have three short things that, that I would say. One is that I, I want to be clear that I think it's good to be vigilant about the potential for self-censorship. And it is good to ask these questions. That was part of what motivated Rory and I to do this study in the first place. So hmm. um, so I want to be clear about that, especially as it relates to sort of how I think about some of these um, journalistic pieces that, that have been sort of more warning or, or critical. And um, Second, as it relates to advice practically to other China scholars is have a backup plan and then have another one. Um, <laughs> and have many projects so that if one becomes unworkable, you can do something else that's productive, that contributes to how we understand this incredibly important country, um, culture, and society that that all of us spend a lot of our time thinking about and working on. Um, and then third is... That I think, and we've seen some some of the discussion shift this way as well, is that it would be really helpful to have a better understanding, I would say better data on, um, and a, a clearer public discussion about the role of what, what the paper calls third-party actors, and um, because a lot of the decisions that have made the headlines actually are not decisions being made by individual academics. Um, some of the authors censored by Cambridge University Press didn't even know that that had happened. Um, and, uh, and so um, I think it would be helpful to have more data and more information uh, so that we can have an informed public conversation, because I really see the relevant policy actors as universities, uh, institutional programs, and centers, and um, and And probably also scholarly scholarly publishers. So academics have a role, and a really important one, Um, but I think the piece that's missing that I'd like to see brought into the conversation, and where I actually think a lot of the institutional and policy responsibility lies, is with universities and publishers at this point.
2: Agreed, agreed. And and I I just wanted to close by saying that I very much agree with a theme that Rory and I think Sheena also mentioned just now, which is to welcome this conversation. I think it's incredibly important for us as academics to constantly interrogate our approach and to be open to criticism, to be open to self-reflection. So I think it's a very healthy process to be going through. Uh, And I hope that as we go through it collectively, Uh, we can be respectful of each other's different uh, approaches, our different methodologies, our different research questions. Um, We can all be doing different things and still be respectful of the findings or the approaches that we're taking. And, And in that regard, I do want to especially mention that uh, there are some people who are doing very cutting-edge work on the most sensitive questions, including Xinjiang. Uh, I think Darren Beiler at the University of Washington has been doing incredible work. Disclosure, in, he's a columnist for SubChina. For yes. SubChina. And and so I have enormous respect for uh, someone like him and the kind of work that he's doing. Um, and, and so I think it's good for us to be having this discussion and to to be respectful of, of the the full range of ways in which people are trying to better understand this incredibly complex country of China.
0: This particular topic, uh, this, it reminds me of something. I'd like to maybe close with a, a question to to all three of you about this. Uh, maybe to borrow framing that Scott Kennedy used at CSIS. He he, he hosted that panel. Uh, he's Freeman Chair at at, uh, at at CSIS. He hosted this panel uh, that you all you both attended about this topic. I think it's really sort of at the heart of the broader debate here, and it never really got talked about as as directly on the panel as I maybe would have liked. But Scott put it really well, I thought. He, he talked about how there are two different archetypes, maybe different ideas of what a China scholar should be uh, about the role of China watchers. On the one hand, he talked about the independent scholar who who follows her curiosity wherever it's going to take her, who speaks truth to power, uh, these are his words, you know, at home or, or in China, uh, but basically stays out of the story, stays out of the limelight, uh, who has an intellectual freedom that is prized and ought to be protected by our society, right, uh, our institutions. On the other hand, there's the patriotic uh, expert. I think that's how, what he called it, the patriotic expert who's, uh, who's supposed to challenge Chinese authoritarianism, who is adversarial in, in his or her approach to taking on these topics, uh, has sort of an obligation to speak up, you know, because China's own experts often can't. And it is, I suspect, much of the uh, these latter types, people who identify or gravitate toward that latter archetype, who are raising a lot of the criticism, the allegations about self-censorship, about, you know, frankly, pusillanimity, uh, who are, are, are criticizing the rest of the field. Uh, do you have thoughts about that dichotomy and about maybe how there is like an overlap that we might find where we can all agree is sort of a, 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 a more useful way to think about our role as China Watchers?
4: I'd be happy to start with this one if, if. Uh,
0: oh please, if please that, by all means. If that works.
4: So I think that's a great broad question to to end with, and I guess when I think about uh, those two views, the way that I reconcile them um, as someone who, you know, wants to think about what's best for my country as a citizen of the united states who uh, thinks of herself as somebody who's patriotic um but who also is deeply committed to truth and intellectual freedom as uh, an american value um i would think of this as uh a, truth as an essential sort of precondition for good policy um so I think there are a lot of academics who follow that independent scholar model. I think that's that's terrific. Um, Rory and I have both participated in a program run by the National Committee on U.S. China Relations that talks about being a, a public intellectual or doing work that is relevant to the challenges that U.S. China relations face today. Um, and that's work that I take pip. very seriously. I, I want I adore, my, my I adore
0: work. Pip. I think Pip is yeah, a great it's a, program. Yeah.
4: It's been a great, great experience. Um, and I would say, you know, it's important to me that my work is, is relevant, that it makes a contribution, not just to our fundamental understanding, but to how the United States behaves productively and, a, and responsibly in the, the world today, in, including, especially in its relationship with China as this, this incredibly important um, country that the United States needs to needs to engage with on, on an incredibly broad and complex range of issues. Um, so I guess the way that I see it is that um, truth is patriotic and Uh, If you care about United States national security and foreign policy, that policy will be most successful if it is based on an accurate and clear eyed understanding of the Chinese political system, not one that starts from a sort of certain ideological commitment. Um, And so that's the way that I would essentially think about those two, uh, those two perspectives and and the middle ground between them.
0: Uh, Whose phone is that? Whose phone was posting just now?
4: That was so mine, you might, sorry. Okay. You might
0: want to have Sheena just say um, that a can, can you see again. just that last bit from from where before your phone started buzzing? Say truth is patriotic?
4: Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So the the way that I think about this essentially is, is Well that- no,
0: no just, just just that just say yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah that, okay. that that's a good place to start. That's a good place to start. Yeah, the truth way that big. I think
4: about this is that, that truth is patriotic and that if you care about American national security and American foreign policy, those policies will be most successful in achieving their stated objectives if they're based on an accurate and clear-eyed understanding of the Chinese political system that is comprehensive and that is based on um, a commitment to to... to exploring and and confronting the truth and and thinking deeply about it
0: and not on some uh sort of pre-existing ideological uh could you add yeah i think it's it's
4: that? it's better to start um start with an open inquiry and then um you know you you base um policy on uh, the best possible knowledge uh, and research and evidence that we have, and that's what makes good policy in the long run. And that, to me, is sort of the place that I start when I think about um, my obligations and I think a lot of the the field. And there's probably a range of perspectives in there, but that's how I think about reconciling those, those two views. Uh,
2: I just want to say I agree very much with what Sheena just said, and I think it's important to underscore that It's very hard to be a scholar working on China at this particular moment in time where the U.S. and China relationship is so critical to global order generally for us not to be cognizant of the larger issues uh, around the relationship and around the, the rise of China and the U.S. response to China, even as we're doing work in our particular silos. It, our work will reflect uh, itself in the larger discussions. And so we have to be conscious of it. But the right approach, I believe, and I think is what Sheena was just saying, was for us to pursue truth in our own work, to do it uh, independent of these larger uh, political questions, but to be cognizant that the work that we do will feed into a larger Political discussion, and hopefully to do so in a in a in a way that's constructive and and helpful. I, I don't know that other scholars uh, doing comparative work in political science or law or sociology are are working in such a charged area. And in some ways, maybe it's a blessing to be working in an area that's not so charged. But on the other hand, it is kind of exciting, I think, for China scholars to be working on our issues. That many of us have been working for many years before it became such a charged atmosphere. To be doing it now, when the attention of the world is on this particular relationship and on that particular country, and so that could be that could be an episode in and of itself. How to do this work in a in a larger context now that is so uh, so significant for the world at, at large.
0: Well, that's a great idea for for a show, uh, Rory. I I have to get to my talk. I, Sheena Greitens, Rory Truex, and, of course, Nason Makhbubi, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Uh, let's go on to recommendations, but before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that The Cynical Podcast is powered by Sup China. If you enjoy The Cynical Podcast or the other shows in the network like the fantastic Tech Buzz and China Econ Talk and New Voices, uh, the wide-ranging content on SubChina, then the best thing you can do is sign up for SubChina Access. Your support makes it possible for us to keep bringing you the reporting, the conversations, the videos, the all of it. On to recommendations. Jeremy,
1: why don't you kick us off? I've been moving house, and one of the joys of moving house is going through boxes of old stuff, and I've been quite pleased to discover that my teenage tastes in jazz were not actually that awful Um, so I have two (laughs) albums to recommend uh, to people who like jazz but also to people who don't like jazz so the first is an album that goes by two names it's either live at the Pershing or at the Pershing but not for me and the musician is Ahmad Jamal the album was recorded live in 1958, and particularly for those of you who don't like jazz, but of course also for those who do, listen first to the track called Poinciana, um, and maybe you might find yourself changing your mind uh, about jazz. The second album I'd like to recommend has a great title, Money Jungle. And it's a studio album by uh, Duke Ellington with the double bassist Charles Mingus and the awesome drummer Max Roach, uh, recorded in 1962. Um, And yeah, I've been, I've had these uh, two albums on heavy rotation, Shea Goldcorn, and I've been enjoying riding around the hollows of West Nashville in my pickup truck, blaring this music and scaring the hillbillies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. that's a rare musical recommendation
0: from jeremy goldcorn uh that's that's great okay sheena what what do you have for us
4: okay so um I recently finished a book over the the winter break um that is set in uh southern idaho called educated and it's a really interesting story about about education um by a woman who um, had the experience of being I, homeschooled is a real stretch. Um, essentially, uh, yeah,
0: she didn't get any homeschooling. Yeah, you know, actually, I've recommended this book before, but I have no problem with you re-recommending it. Uh, it's been one of my recommendations before.
4: It's fantastic. Darn it! Right? It's I was hoping that nobody that I nobody had had beat me to recommending it Westover, um, on the, yeah. the podcast. Yes, it's a fascinating book. I have tons Sorry. of thoughts about it. Um, <laughs> that I but I but um. Um, Well, the other the other one was just kind of a a funny um, one. Both Roy and I have young kids and um, I have spent uh, we've we've had some recent snow here in Missouri. So I've spent a lot of time indoors with my kids reading Um, and my two year old would like to put in a recommendation for a book called Harry and the Horrible What's It? which is a kid's book from the 70s mm. or 80s about a monster that lives in the basement behind the furnace. So if anybody needs a good winter kid's book, um, my two-and-a-half-year-old would like to pass on Harry and the Horrible What's It.
0: Nathan, what do you have for us?
2: So I was just thinking we started this conversation with a reference to Perry Link's famous article on the anaconda and the chandelier. And I want to recommend a book that was incredibly influential when I first started studying China, Uh, in uh, structuring how I thought of what I was doing, which I think actually resonates a lot with the discussion that we had today, which is Perry Link's 1992 book, Evening Chats in Beijing. Yes. Uh, To my mind, it is still one of the very best accounts of the discussions that someone might have in the environment in Beijing, and particularly with the intellectuals uh, that uh, Perry Link was uh, hanging out with in his year... In Beijing, 1988 to 89, leading up to, of course, the Tiananmen Square crackdown, and I think it just—it's such a beautiful, poignant account that so much captures the uh, spirit of the sort of conscience of the nation that Chinese intellectuals uh, embody, um, and that we, as foreign scholars, uh, tap into, and that informs the work that we do, and that we also try to be careful of in how we express ourselves so for any listeners who have not yet come across the book i, I can't recommend it highly
0: it's enough. it's excellent I, I heartily second that recommendation. Nathan, now
4: you're well. making me feel unserious for giving a non-china recommendation
0: oh don't worry don't worry it's it was a it's a great one i mean i think harry and and the terrible
3: what's it are is right up there next now <laughs> i'm gonna take that recommendation
0: all right Let's go with Rory now. What do you have for uh, us?
3: So I was going to recommend uh, a website that I've been going to a lot lately. It's called ChinaChange.org, and I'm, I'm sure a number of you are familiar with it. It's run by a woman, Cao uh, Yashue, who um, really has taken it upon herself to serve as a go-between uh, between the Chinese dissident community and the Chinese human rights uh, community in the West. And so the, the website features a really great content, um, a lot of translations and, and profiles of people, uh, everyone from Wei Chen lawyers to, to some of the, the feminists uh, who are working now and, and, and doing really interesting work in China. So I, I would just recommend that website. It has a lot of great content, and I think it's it's kind of a hidden gem uh, for our field.
0: Yeah, I think I think most people, uh, many people, are very familiar with her work. Uh, very very brave stuff. Uh, my recommendation is for a, a China related book. I haven't done this in a while, but uh, it's Sulman Wasif Khan's Haunted by Chaos. Uh, which I've only—he's—he's he's at the Fletcher School at Tufts. I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm—I'm uh, I'm quite a few chapters in. It's about Chinese grand strategy and the continuities in it. Uh, I have a sense for where it's going, though. Uh, I've skimmed ahead and you know, to later chapters, and I've looked at the citations, which are mind-blowingly—you uh, know—I see he—he he really made extensive use of his access to the Foreign Ministry archives. Uh, the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archives, uh, you know, because he, he his. Access hadn't been repressed yet, <laughs> um, so he wasn't in bucket one just just then. Uh, well, his conclusions are not going to be maybe surprising to some of us, uh, but they affirm quite a bit of what I have long believed about the impetus behind a lot of Chinese foreign policy, and also works very much in the spirit of my late mentor Alan S. Whiting, uh, who would have very much approved because you know he he talks about the the, the absolute importance of being able to think like. Uh, Chinese elites and understanding their mindset nothing better than that uh, it's a really terrific book sounds great yeah it's really really good and and the writing by the way the prose is gorgeous I mean he's he's a really really terrific write, writer uh, so th- thank you all three of you again for, for doing the show with, I mean, uh, Rory just great to, to finally meet you in person Sheena uh, just terrific I have lots of stuff to talk to you guys about in the future so we'll, we'll have you on plenty in the future Nason, I can't
2: thank you enough for having me here at the center. We're thrilled to have you speak in about 15 minutes. I have an overflow audience, I'm sure.
4: (laughs) Thanks so much for having us. It's, It's been terrific. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Nason. Thank you. Jeremy, great talking to you as always fascinating discussion. The Sinica Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason MacRonald. Special thanks this week to the great people here at the UPAD Center for the Study of Contemporary China for hosting me, especially to Nason, to Yun and of course to Avery Goldstein. Drop us an email at sineca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at subchina news. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Saishin Sinica Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and our brand new Middle Earth, the Chinese Culture Industry Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.